Welcome, everybody. Today we finish the book of Ecclesiastes. Well, let me put it this way. My goal is to finish the book of Ecclesiastes. If we attain that goal, it will be because you are going to be quiet and won't ask any questions. No, that is not true. That is not true. Uh, I don't want you to feel any pressure. I really, I shouldn't have said that. But uh, if you're following in your uh, notes, it's page 18. And it's, it's very interesting section um, because verse 3 through 5, Solomon uses a variety of very creative figures of speech, metaphors, to describe what happens in old age. So if you're over 60, you may not want to read this uh, because this is, uh, this is not particularly encouraging. Uh, and again, I'm being a little bit facetious there. Chapter 12, verse 1 begins, Remember also your Creator in the days of your youth. Now that takes you back to verse 9 of chapter 11. Remember, young man, during your childhood. So Solomon is saying something because, as he goes on in verse 1, before the evil days come and the years draw near when you will say, I have no delight in them. Um, it's interesting what he's saying here because the, the contrast between being young and being old is marked. And he says, develop the pattern of remembering and worshiping and focusing on your creator when you're young. The inference seems to be so that it will continue when you get old. Does that make sense? Sure. Isn't it interesting that he refers to God as the creator? He doesn't say, I mean, he could, he could have, he could have said, remember the Lord in your days, remember God, remember Yahweh. I mean, he doesn't, he doesn't choose any of those very significant titles or names for God, your creator. Can we think about that for a little bit? Why put it that way? Remember your creator in the days of your youth. It's common, that wasn't, it's common for anybody of all different faiths. I mean, they, they believe there's a creator, and it brings people together. That's an interesting thought. Could It could be. Um, but I think he's, he's, he's doing more than just that. He's not necessarily trying to only create like a sense of unity or common purpose. I think he's doing something even deeper than that. Well, when you're a kid, you're invincible. Mm. You can do anything by yourself. Mm. And therefore, to focus on God as creator... There's someone other than you. Ah, remind you that you're not you. invincible. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's, um, that's good. That's good. I think it's uh, for some impact to remind everybody that God is the creator. Mm. He created all of this. Mm. And he has some, it might have more impact than, than God. Or... That's, yes, that's, that's, a, that's a, very definitely true. 
uh, as well. Um, he's a man that has had it all and experienced it all in life. And he's reminding them to remember who made you. And he's remembering that himself as well, I'm sure. Because God is our creator. Absolutely. Well, and also, you know, he's talking about youth and age, and he's talking about our creator. God created us. He created us this way. He had the power to make it so that our strength wouldn't diminish if he chose to. He didn't choose. I mean, I guess all I'm saying is what we are is what he chose for us to be. Okay. Okay. And uh, certainly by extension, uh, you, could, you could suggest and argue, really, that he created each one of us very uniquely. I mean, because you know, I look around this table, you're all, I mean, you know, like different ages and, and all of that. But, I mean, you just are different. You look differently. You have different skills. You have different abilities. That's, that uniqueness of God's work stems from thinking of him as creator. I'm interested in, I'm interested in developing two really important, core, if I use the word corollary, do you want to mean corollaries to the idea or the doctrine or the truth or the belief that God is the creator? There are two necessary results of that. One is that we are dependent on him. That necessarily goes with the proposition that God's a creator. And second, it necessarily means we are accountable. The idea of God as creator, it, it, maybe I can use this word, the doctrine of God as creator. The theological truth of God as creator it implies two, I believe, very profound truths. If God is my creator, and he has created everything that is a part of my world, then I'm dependent on him. I'm not autonomous. I'm not, I'm not self-created, <laughs> which is a really stupid thing to even say, but sometimes, you know, the way people live their lives and the, the incredible autonomy that is a part of our world today and the way people, especially in the West, Western Europe, United States, etc., is just this, this sense that I'm independent, I'm autonomous. Nothing reminds you of the foolishness of that proposition than that God's your creator. And then second, you're accountable. That is one of the reasons, well, uh, the, the, these two corollaries to that truth, one of the reasons why I think uh, the idea of God as creator and the whole, may I call it the whole doctrine of creation, is so controversial for many people. Because with the advent of Darwin's hypothesis in 1859, all of a sudden, no, I should say all of a sudden, maybe a better way to say it, now became possible. It now became uh, intellectually defensible to embrace the idea that you really don't need God. Because Darwin's, Darwin's hypothesis centers on an impersonal force. Natural selection that explains everything. And people began to embrace that. And with over the next hundred years, it became not a fringe idea, it became the main idea. And I'm not saying that's the only reason, but I think that's part of it. That's part of it. 
Because if you stipulate God as your creator, automatically it means you're accountable to him. Automatically. Do you want to push back on that? I'd, I'd like to add something, because he comes up with a conclusion of this that your professor in Dallas mentioned too, that when we are aligned with him and we recognize these things, we really can enjoy our lives. Mm. Which is one of the main points of the book of Ecclesiastes, that's right. Exactly. God's going to look at some of us when we get to, to glory. He's going to say, I really wanted you to enjoy it more, which is what I was quoting. I don't want to spend any more time on this, but I want you to think about that. The Bible, uh, and it, it depends on the book you're in. It depends on what's going on in the text. But when the Bible brings up the idea, the doctrine, the truth that God's the creator, there are a lot of, there are a lot of tentacles to that truth. And we need to really think through and I do believe that's part of what Solomon is saying here. Remember your creator when you're young. Because as you correctly said, youth is by its nature invincible. I can do anything. And remind, well, remember, if that is true, you're very gifted. Your creator gave you those gifts. You are not invincible. You're accountable. You're dependent. And that is, uh, that's contrary. But the truth is, make that a pattern of your life now. Because, I mean, I know I'm a lot, I'm old now, so I know a lot of old people. And I know a lot of old people who don't know God. And they are the most bitter, no, not, that's a general statement, not everybody. But they're often the most bitter, grumpy, hard to be around people. Because they're ticked off at everything. Because life didn't quite treat them the way they wanted to treat them. Remember God when you're young as your creator. Then verse 2 and 3 and 4 and 5 are descriptions of old age. Now, we could, uh, I one time knew a pastor who spent three sermons on these verses. What a depressing series of messages. Good night. All I'm suggesting, if you look at the notes at the bottom of page 18, and this, this, none of this is original with me. This is a very typical but very common sense way to look at it. Each one of these metaphors, like the keepers of the house, they're the arms and the trunk. The strong men stoop. Your legs grow bent. Your, your spine starts to... My father has arthritis of the lower spine. My dad walks like this. He's bent over. I mean, it's just part of old age. Arthritis is, that's just part of it. And he goes on. Grinders cease because they're few. Your teeth. Now, in the ancient world, and you probably know, in the ancient world, most people died with about three or four teeth in their mouth. George Washington, now, I mean, that's, not, that's only in the 1700s. He died in 1799. George Washington died with one of his original teeth. He wore false teeth that had been designed by Ben Franklin. They were made of wood. And he writes constantly how horrible it is. They, 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 they grind his gums apart. He's always, his mouth is always bleeding. You and I, don't, we don't know anything about that because of modern dental science and we know how to care for teeth and so on. But in the ancient world, uh, those looking through the grass as though dim your eyesight. 
Doors to the house, doors to the street are closed. Lips sinking as teeth are lost. You know, <laughs> anyway, I don't have to. When my, men rise up at the sound of birds, you can't sleep. My father is 90 years old, and my father has difficulty sleeping through the night. I mean, it, he, he gets up a lot. It's just, and so he's, it, it, when it's, if it's about 3 o'clock in the morning, he gets up. He's kind of done. He has to fight. And it's just, you arrive, my dad goes to bed early and gets up, gets up early. He's kind of following Ben Franklin's early to bed, early to rise, makes me healthy, wealthy, and wise. Well, my says, I don't want to do that, but I can't stay awake. And then when I get to bed, I can't get up. You know, it's just, that's just terrible. All the songs grow faint. Hearing. I'm 67 years old, and I am having difficulty hearing high-pitched sounds. We're sitting in the house, or we're out taking a walk. Peggy said, did you hear that? No, I didn't hear it. What was it? She said, didn't you hear that beautiful bird singing? Where? I didn't, you know, it's terrible. I know none of you know what, what I'm talking about. You don't have a clue what I'm saying. I'm just sharing with you these terrible stories. Afraid of heights and dangers in the street. The absence of vigor, fear to venture out. My parents do not go out at night anymore. Now, in Pennsylvania, Dad's 90, he still has his license. But Dad doesn't drive at night. The glare of the lights, if it's rain, I mean, that's just, and, and they don't like to go out at night. Dad locks every door in the house at 8 o'clock at night. Because 16 years ago, some man came off the street and was shaking at their door wanting to come in. And I mean, it's just, it's, this, isn't, this isn't cynical or condemnatory, it's just a reality. As you get older, fear can increase. I love this one. The almond tree blossoms. Hair turns gray, and let's see, who has white and gray? Well, I see quite a few, and several don't have any hair. So, Hair turns gray and white, for such blossoms are white. Grasshopper drags, drags him along. A bent body and one's walk becomes slowed. Desire is no longer stirred. Appetites, and particularly sexual appetite, the sexual intimacy of life. It's just, everything's drying up. Man goes to eternal home and mourners go about in the streets. Death, grave, and grieving people. Solomon, it's, it's one of the few places in the entire Bible where you see kind of a panoramic view of old age. And even with all our sophisticated technology and, and all the medical technology that we have. Basically, what he's describing still describes us as we get older. Why is he doing all that? Remember verse 1. Remember your creator when you're young. Yeah. You don't have to raise your hand, Woody. If you went back to verse 1. Yes. I have some thoughts on that that I want to share with you all. Um, he's saying, remember your creator in the days of your youth. And in the last one, and he says, if you don't, you will have no delight in them. He's talking about the days of their youth, of the youth. <clears throat> and and I think that I've seen young people make mistakes and turn their back on God when they are young, only to regret it when they're older right. and so they, they have no delight in right. some of the deeds that they did that's and right. I don't mean they 
I mean, me. Like and, everyone. You know, I think mm -hmm. probably we've all done some things that right. we regret. Right. You know, and, and it didn't make sense to us because we were invincible, you know, bulletproof, and <clears throat> we didn't. We were <clears throat> young and cocky, and we didn't. We didn't need a guy. Yeah. Some of us, you know, if we weren't brought up that yeah. way. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And uh, so I, I think he's referring to when he says, "Near when you will say, I have no delight in them." I think he's referring to the days of your youth when you've forgotten your Creator. Do you think that's? Possible? I do. I, well, and it, you know, the, the the term years is plural, so it can mean, in a sense, the whole span of your life. If you don't, it, let's put it another way. If you don't start out right, your, your life will be characterized by that. By the time you're end, you're going to have lots of regrets. I, I don't have much delight at all. I've told you that one of the business guys that I've ministered to in one of my other groups, he, he says, I'm now seeing that I've been leaning my ladder against the wrong wall. Remember I said that yeah. one time? That and that's an example. He, the Lord, interrupted his life. He came to faith, and he's he's leaning the ladder now against the right wall. But that, it's that's what he's saying. If you don't start out right, you're going to have tremendous regrets, and you're going to have trouble delighting in a lot of what you've done with your life. And at the grace of God, where He can rescue us at any age and get us back on the right path. But you're right. You, you know, um, um, I mean, there are just so many. Individuals and names are just flitting through my mind right now. But how many people um, start off their life wrong and never get straightened out? And they just kind of self-destruct. And it doesn't matter. I'm not talking about wealth or absence of wealth. I'm, not, I'm just talking about what can happen in life. You know, it's just, it's, it's, that, it's that tendency. I choose to live my life the way I want to leave, live it, regardless of God. He's irrelevant to me. I may tip my hat at him every now and then. And Solomon's just giving some of the wisest counsel you can possibly imagine. Start out right. So that you won't end with massive regrets about how you... Because by the time you're old, it's too late. You're know, not too late to, to put your faith in the Lord, but it's too late. You have years and years and decades and decades and decades... Well, you've just lived, you've lived your life, not honored to God, but just the opposite. You know, I've seen, you know, to be honest with you, my grandchildren doing, making mistakes, you know, they, they don't, I had to make them too, I couldn't learn them from somebody else, but, you know, I see them making mistakes, and, and I know they were going to regret those someday. Exactly. But you can't get that across to them, if you, you know, if you try, I don't, <laughs> I don't have a lot of influence with them, you know, they're, they are, they're smarter than uh, some of us, you know, the young kids, and they just, uh, well, I know I was smarter than my parents when I was 16 and 17. They were and when you, get, when you get to about 25 or 26, you start to say, you know, my parents, they're a little wiser than I thought they were. Did they grow up or something? You know? <laughs> no. Anyway, I think that's really Yeah. No, I, you, you, I think you've nailed it. You, you absolutely have nailed it. We have, you know, some of us are grandfathers, and some of us are, you know, we have we're new fathers and so forth. And, and, uh, well, Andrew, he's looking at you. Is there something I don't know? <laughs> oh, okay. He looked at me, I was like, oh, man. You will be eventually, I think, maybe. But, you know, someone said I'd rather see a testimony than, than 
hear one. And and I think kids pick up on who we are, really. Mm. Who we are by what they see. Absolutely. And, and sort of, we have accountability to them as well to encourage them in the Lord. Uh, and we can do that, you know, if we're doing what we can to do the same thing that we're asking mm-hmm. them to do, mm-hmm. you know, or encouraging them to do. Uh, that old saying, our walk should really match our talk. Because kids, teenagers especially, but even younger children, pick up uh, with very easily with inconsistency. There's so many sidebars and bunny trails we could do with this, but it, it also reinforces one of the very strong obligations of the local church, working with parents and training up the next generation. Parents today, a, a church here in town in October has asked me to do a Wednesday night thing. They're doing some really cool things. Our church, the church I'm involved in, the church plant, we're just putting together the framework for a youth ministry. But this church, it's a pretty good-sized church in town, they're starting something new. Their youth ministry is parents and teens together, which is a real revolutionary concept, really. And um, they're starting young. They're starting with fifth grade and sixth grade and seventh grade kids, meeting with their parents. They do some things together, but they, and part of the whole focus is to get to get these kids prepared for what's going to face them when they leave their parents, and typically when they go to college is when that that first break occurs. And uh, it's. It's, it's an interesting approach to youth ministry because it's, it's focusing about as much time on the parents as it is on the kids. Just think about that for a minute. Because I, I don't know how you guys are. I mean, I've raised my children, but parenting is really a difficult task today. I mean, it, it, the challenges are immense because typically... Typically, the extended family isn't around to support you because we're a much more mobile society. I mean, I, I live 1,500 miles from my parents, so my kids grew up knowing their grandparents but didn't have that daily or weekly contact with my grandparents, or with my parents, their grandparents. And I said, because, okay, that plus there's technology competing, plus there, is, there are all the activities that just generally, by the time the kids are about... Eighth grade, they're almost autonomous already. They're living, they're living a stream, they're living on a path that every now and then they connect with mom and dad, but not very often. And you start to, whoa, the, what this church is trying to do is build those connections that even as kids get busy, and parenting, one of the skills is parenting, help your kids to make wise decisions about how they're going to spend their time. Is it wise for you to be in four athletic sports in a given year? Jonathan, is that, is that wise for you to do that? What do you think? You know, where every minute of your day you're involved in sports. Plus, you're learning how to play an instrument. Plus, you're in the local chess club. Plus, I mean, just I'm going, making this up. But it's, just, it's one of those interesting dynamics. So Solomon is saying, remember your creator when you're young. Start off right. Because old age is coming. And by the time old age is here, God's grace is still there, but you may have such regrets about your whole life. 
So that's, that's Solomon's counsel. So he's he's bringing to a conclusion. Verse six and verse seven is about death, you know, dust, and all. I don't think that's difficult. But let's let's. I really want to make sure we finish this. Verse nine through fourteen, the last verses of the book. Into addition to being a wise man, the preacher also taught the people knowledge. The preacher is Solomon. And he pondered, searched out, and arranged many proverbs, which is what we have been reading. The preacher sought to find delightful words and to write words of truth correctly. What's he telling us? I took this very seriously. Through proverbs, through figurative language, I want to communicate truth. Verse 11, the words, and if we could paraphrase it, the words of this book are like goads. Now, unless you've raised cattle or pigs or have been around people, you don't know what a goad is. A goad is that which prods an animal to action. It's not a negative word. So Solomon is saying these words, which we have studied together, are to prod you to action. The complacent, sit, soak, and sour demeanor is not what we're after. The masters of these collections are like well-driven nails. They produce stability in life. A well-driven nail. I mean, I'm, I'm not a carpenter. When I hammer nails, I bend them, and I have to pull them out and start over again. But the goal is you want to get that nail the whole way in the piece of wood. Not halfway in it, because you want it to hold when you are away, and 10 years from now it's still holding. That's what his words are like. Places of stability for you. Anchors of stability. Beyond this, be warned, the writing of many books is endless. Excessive devotion to books is wearing to the body. And he's talked about that before. It's, it's just there's lots and lots of stuff for you to read. Lots and lots of stuff for you to give your devotion to. But remember the inspired words. And here's the conclusion. Here's the conclusion of the whole book. Fear God. Keep his commandments. Because this applies to every person. Because God will bring every act of judgment, everything which is hidden, whether it's good or bad. Three basic truths. Let's take them apart. Solomon is at the end of his life. Solomon has, Solomon has lived what he said. This is what I've learned, Solomon says. Point number one, fear God. Now, I think you know this, but let me remind you. Fear is really a worship word in the Bible. That's really what it is. It's a worship word. It's a response to God. Who he is, what he stands for, what his values are what his moral law is, what his ethical standards are. Worshipful devotion to him. Second, keep his commandments. What's that? Walk in obedience with him. If he's the creator, which he is, and if he's created a moral law, which are the standards by which we're to live because he's his creator, then the logical and common sense response to that is to obey them. But our tendency is to, and by our, I mean just human beings' tendency is to always say, well, no, I want, I want, to, I want to go my way. I, I, don't want, I don't want to play with these lines in the tennis court. I want to make new lines. 
Does God give us the freedom to make new lines? Yes. But God's built into his world a moral structure that if you cross over the lines and you do things your way, they're just your consequences. And then the other point that he's making is, because this applies to every person, there is no human being, there is no human being that's immune to this. Because God holds everybody accountable. That's the point of verse 14. God will bring every act to judgment. God will hold us accountable. There's a moral structure to this universe and you're not autonomous. And the beauty of what God has done is everything he's done is for our good. And we don't always look at it that way. But Solomon is saying, I'm at the end of my life and this is what I've learned. How do we communicate this to young people? Worship God, adore him, love him for who he is. Obey him because you're accountable to him. How do you get those truths across? Well, you teach them. You model it, and you you follow you follow the methodology of good teacher. You give a preview, you give a view, and then you give a constant review. That's life. There is such a simplicity to this. I mean, you listen, you read over this, you say, "There isn't any more to this." No, that's it. I'm saying, I've come to the end of my life, and this is what I've learned. What brings meaning and purpose to life is worship the Lord, obey the Lord, because he's watching. Not, not as a sort of Damocles kind of watching, but he's watching. He's holding account because he's his creator. He's the right to do that. Uh, I, I rarely get to say this, but we're done with this book. <laughs> But more importantly, any questions or comments or, or thoughts as we conclude this, Joel? I, I have a kind of question and comment uh, on, and this goes back to some of the earlier weeks of the study and talking about work in general. And I know you made a comment or made some comments about you know, passion and, and so forth. Yes. Um, try to make this a quick story. I, my daughter's a senior, and we took her uh, several weeks ago to a kind of a counselor to talk about. <clears throat> What might she do well with, and mm-hmm. what kind of a school might mm-hmm. might she uh, excel in? Um, and of course, Grace University was the answer. But anyway, there, leaving she, that aside, yeah. <laughs> no. but uh, well, one of the things that, that this individual uh, said is she said, you know, there's been this kind of um, this kind of uh, feeling in the last generation or so that says, you know, if you if you love what you do, you'll never work a day in your life. And she said, I think that's baloney. Mm. She didn't use that word. And she said, you know, you, you know, work is kind of work and you should enjoy it. It should be enjoyable. But she, she was kind of saying, like, I think people, especially my daughter's generation, it's almost like they're, they're looking for too much in mm. a job or mm. in their work. Mm. She kind of said, you know, your passion is something that should fill up your weekends and, and evenings mm. and other life. And, and you can be happy in your work, you can be passionate about your work, but she said her perspective, talking to hundreds of college age mm-hmm. students every year, is that that younger generation kind of looks for too mm-hmm. much 
and then it's like, well, gee, my, my job isn't 100% satisfying, so, you know, I need to go look for something else to do. So, and, and, and you know, I, I confess that that's, you know, sometimes I kind of have those feelings, like, gee, I'm not getting, you know, I'm not getting this awesome satisfaction out of my job today or this week or this month. So, I mean, can you speak to that in light of everything Solomon says here and your own perspectives? Wow. Um, let's just let's let's think of what Solomon is really saying. Not not even so much what I'm saying, but what Solomon is saying. If you leave God out of the picture mm-hmm. of your life, any part of your life—work, leisure, etc.—will never ultimately satisfy. But if God is at the center of your life, then every aspect of your life. If it is framed around Him, brings the joy, and I don't even, actually I don't even like the word happiness, mainly because that isn't very much a, very often a biblical word, but that sense of fulfillment, that sense of joy, that sense of purpose. I, I just I just finished reading a new biography of James Madison. Now the only reason I'm telling you that is because there was something in that book that struck me. Um, Madison was one of those. You know, he was a very early president. He followed Thomas Jefferson as president for two terms. He was from Virginia, neighbor of, of Jefferson. And like Jefferson, he had a plantation. He had a big farm. And it was really fascinating how Madison was like a lot of these very early presidents. They're the, they the cream of the crop in American society at that time. Well-educated as you would measure things in, in late colonial, early national society. Wealth was measured by land and you know, all of those things. And how Madison's whole approach to everything was, I want to do the very best I can in each one of these categories of my life. And my, my life involves my plantation, my farm, my wife. He was married to Dolly Madison, who's one of the most remarkable women in American history. I found out more about Dolly Madison than I ever thought I wanted to know, but she's just an incredibly interesting gal. Plus, uh, um, all of the aspects of life, and he was seeking... He was seeking fulfillment and purpose in every category of life. But he didn't find it very much. He was, a, he was an extreme rationalist. He believed in God, but he didn't believe in the God of the Bible. And that's what he said. I believe in God without question. I believe God holds us accountable, but it's not the God of Scripture. You know, that's how he would say it. And he, he, he would strive for that, and he was incredibly intelligent, and I think the main, the main reason he never found that was because he didn't have that relationship with God. God was an entity. He was not an atheist by any stretch, but an enti- entity with which he found it impossible to have any personal relationship. You know what I mean? And so there was always this vacuum in his life. Now, I don't know what happened to him in the last days of his life. I, I don't know. The, the author didn't even go into that, but other than the fact that he died. So I don't know, maybe something happened in those last days of his life, but I found that sad. Now, what I'm, I'm getting back to the main point, Joel. I think I would agree with her if you, if you passionately seek and dump everything into your work, that's probably not going to be real fulfilling. That gets us back to what's the main principle of biblical Christianity. Everything you do, do the glory of God. 
First Corinthians ten thirty one is one of the major passages that teach that. So th- that's everything. So I'm out cutting my grass. I'm doing that the glory of God. Do you do it well? Yeah. Take care of the property. God gave it to you. You know, enjoy a meal. Absolutely. God provided it for you. Enjoy it to its fullest. I'm doing it to God's glory. I mean, you just go on and on and on because you're bringing God into absolutely every dimension of life, and that brings meaning and purpose. And you're talking to him about it. You're involving him in it. Not most of us, most of us are only just beginning to really learn what that means. We say, ah, um, I go to worship service, and go to church, and I do this for this hour and a half, two hours. Ah, that's good. Oh, I feel so good. And you walk out of there, and you encourage and so on. But then you forget that the same God you worshiped and were involved with and prayed to Sunday morning is also with you Monday morning at 7 a.m., and I want you to feel very, very fulfilled in your, in your work because you're doing it to his glory. And as you raise your kids and as you care for your house and as you start to think about old age and you plan for, I mean, all of those things you're involving God in. Joel, that's the missing piece in that counselor, what she's saying to young people, in my opinion. Because I agree with a good bit of what she's saying. And you are absolutely right. Um, the... The millennial generation is seeking the constant buzz in everything they do. And if they don't get it, they go on to something else. And that is applying to work, too. And as you know, we live in a society now where, I mean, my father, uh, his generation, you started with a company and you retired with that company. I mean, you have 40, 45 years of the company. That's almost unheard of today. For lots of reasons, it isn't just one reason. But so that, that loyalty and devotion and sense of worth, I work for GM. That used to be somebody who's really proud of saying that. You know, and if you lived in Detroit, well, Detroit just, you know, oh my, I don't even want to live in Detroit, let alone work for GM. But it's just, it's such a different thing. So it gets us back to what really is a defining meaning and purpose of life. What Solomon say? Here, God, involve God 24-7 in your life. Walk with him in obedience. Because you know that everything you do is important to him. Let's put that in a positive. Because verse 13, bring every act of judgment. Another way of saying that is everything is eternally significant to God. So my work is eternally significant. My sleep is eternally significant. My stewardship on my body is eternally significant. Everything to God is important. God doesn't compartmentalize things. So how does Joel impart that to his senior daughter? You know, I mean, maybe she's there. You know, I don't know that. I don't know her. But how do you get that across to a younger person? Well, I don't know her, but I know Joel somewhat. I know his family. I, I, would, I would think that she has gotten that message, directly and indirectly, and she's at the point where she's choosing whether she's buying all this. And she probably already has chosen that. I, 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 don't, know how to, I don't know how to answer that specifically, Woody, but generally speaking, the, the answer to that is parents, 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 parents have to live this. And the church has to reinforce it. And up until very recently, there was always a triangle in a young person's life. That triangle was the family, the church, and the school. One of the parts of the triangle is gone, the school. It's, it's generally antagonistic to what the church and the parents are trying to do. 
it, it doesn't always mean that, but it, it can mean that. So uh, all I'm saying is, Woody, uh, you as parents, you have to you have to really really focus on what does this mean. It means I teach it, I share it, I illustrate it, and I live it. And yeah, I, you know, we we didn't do everything perfectly by any stretch, but we tried to incorporate that kind of stuff as we were raising and just talk to the kids a lot of, a lot about what we were doing. Why are we doing this? And one of the things we we chose to live in a small house. We 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 did not buy a large house even if it got into the leadership. We probably had two dozen people say, "Now you're going to buy a big home, right?" No, we hadn't thought about doing that. And the kids, the kids went, "Dad, why don't you buy a bigger house now?" Well, we, we, we're comfortable with where we live. We don't see the need to do that and to listen. And we would explain to them why we were doing this decision so that it would give us the freedom to do this and this and this. We don't have a real high mortgage. We don't have big insurance. We don't have big taxes. There are consequences to make a decision like that. And you involve the kids. I'm, I'm, I'm just using it as an illustration, Woody. It sounded like it was self-elevating. I didn't mean it to sound that way. But that's the kind of stuff where you're just constantly helping your kids to see this is why mom and dad are doing this. This is why they've chosen to do this. Not necessarily saying that, now you've got to make this choice too when you're 30 years old. But you understand, and it's that the things that come back to us now from the kids is really interesting. The most significant sentence my son ever uttered, Dad, you were right. <laughs> I'm not going to tell you what it was about, but I thought, I can't believe Jonathan's saying that, but that was really a good I'll tell you, it's hard. I mean, I honestly, and like, like Joel's family and some of the other guys who have young children, I do not envy you. I love being a parent, but I wouldn't want to do it again. Not, not with what our kids are facing today. We've got, really, we got to help prepare them. Yet, grandparents are involved. Yeah. <laughs> we have to be. Absolutely. Yeah. To yeah. the next generation. Yeah. That's gotta be very fulfilling. That must be uh, very rewarding. I mean, we're, we have one grandchild coming, but I, I don't know what that's like. But I, I can imagine it must be very, very fulfilling to see that. Men, um, this is the kind of book, what time is it? This is the kind of book that um, it's one of those that just is valuable to go back and reread it. I've given you notes and things. Do whatever you want. You want to use it to start your fire this summer or this winter in, in your fireplace at home. But if you want to keep it, it's the kind of thing that I hope you'll I hope you'll go back to it again and again. If you remember two things, Solomon begins by thinking, "If there is no God, I'm going to live my life as if there's no God." And those first three chapters, you see the consequence. The you know, vanity and vanity. The box is closed. There's no God. I'm not. Solomon says, "Disaster." Then he brings God into the picture, and he, he goes through every facet of life. With God, I still don't understand everything. I still don't have all my questions answered. 
But wisdom is a lot. We've written that about written down on the board about eight times over the last couple of months. The wise person is the person who trusts God, walks with Him in faith, and obeys Him. You don't always get all your questions answered. You don't have the eternal, infinite perspective He has, but you learn to trust Him. The end of the matter is worship God, obey God. Everything you do is important. He's watching. Lord, we're thankful for our time in the study of Ecclesiastes. I trust it's been a blessing to these men. It has a lot to say to us, um, but certainly at the end, it's all distilled down into three thoughts. Fear and worship God. Be devoted to him. Walk in obedience with him, because everything you do is important to him. He's watching. What a great perspective about life that is. Help us as men not to compartmentalize our lives and and see you kind of disconnected from what we do at work or what we do out in our yards as we care for it or what we do any area of our life. You're involved in everything. You want to be involved in everything. Uh, and God, we thank you for that kind of intimacy that we can enjoy with you in our walk with you. May that be meaningful. And may we model that before our children and our grandchildren. May they see that our walk with you is vibrant and vital. Uh, We want this next generation to pick that up and take the baton to the next generation. We don't want them to falter. We want them to to have a walk with you that is as vital and vibrant as the walk we've developed. Help us to talk about it and help us to live it. I commit these men to you. Be with them the rest of this day and the busyness of their lives. Help them in all they do to represent you well. In Jesus' name, amen. See you next week.